I do want to tell you this. I had a meeting scheduled tomorrow. It was, I'll be honest, it's not an ordinary meeting that I book, but I've been trying to get this meeting with this guy who runs this uh, great organization that starts all kinds of churches and all that. And um, the, the thing was, the meeting was in Birmingham, Alabama. So I got the meeting, and so I said, well, I'll just figure out a way to get to Birmingham. So what, what the plan was that I was going to teach this, teach this morning, then get on a plane this afternoon and fly to Atlanta, and then the buddy of mine who had booked the, uh, the meeting, he and I were going to drive the three hours from Atlanta to Birmingham tomorrow morning, have the meeting. Then I was going to drive back fast because I was losing an hour going from central time back to eastern time, get back on a plane and be home in time to tuck my kids in to bed. Um, that, is, that was all the case until I got this email last week. Kind of changed my plans a little bit. And I actually, lest you guys don't think I'm... Do you think I'm making this up? I actually wrote, I just copied and pasted the email into my notes. So check out the email that I got. It said that said, hey, um, we just got word that there's a little bit of a change in the schedule. Uh, they double booked an event they had planned. So they're, uh, they're doing a quail hunt the day that we're supposed to be in Birmingham. But they still want to connect with you so you guys can meet while you shoot quail. Uh, we just have to be there at 9 a.m. Sorry for the confusion. Here's my response, because I copied that in, too. Hey, um, I've never had a meeting before while I'm killing animals at the same time. So I do have a couple of questions. Number one, what does it take to hunt quail? Number two, what do you wear for such an event? Number three, do I need to buy a shotgun? Number four, does TSA frown on people bringing shotguns on planes? Number five, didn't former Vice President Dick Cheney almost blow someone's head off while hunting quail? Signed, Bob, the great endorsement, Franquiz. Um, then here's my friend's response. Bob, you are a wuss. Um, I don't want to hear any excuses. I want you on a plane to Atlanta, and we're going quail hunting so you can have this meeting. Uh, one of the guys said he has a military-grade machine gun that he's going to lend you, so you don't need to bring anything. Just wear jeans and a T-shirt. I'll get you back to Atlanta in time. P.S. You're a wuss. These are my friends. I need to change the people I hang out with. So this is my response to him. Uh, this isn't going to work. There's not enough time for me to kill quail with a military-grade machine gun and get back to Atlanta by the time that my flight leaves. By the way, I also think we need to talk to the guy who lends out these machine guns at will about changing his ways. Um, also, let us remember... That when the children of Israel complained to the Lord, God sent them quail as a curse. Numbers 11 teaches us, uh, I will send them, I will give them quail until it comes out of their nostrils because of their whining. Signed, Bob. He responds one line. I guess we won't be seeing you at the quail hunt. I respond, no. So, anyway, the good thing is, whenever you're in a situation like that, you can always throw out a random Bible verse at somebody. Um, but I don't know if you've ever been there. You ever been in a situation like that? You just don't like the plans as they're unfolding. And I, I remember getting these, these emails and I'm walking around the office and the guys uh, in the office are laughing at me and they're like, you're going to go hunt quail. That's like the worst. You'd never do anything like that. You're going to find a way to get out of this, aren't you? And I'm like, of course I'm not. Uh, yeah, I'm going to do that. I am. And, uh, but I think we do this with God. We do this with God because as Christians, here's what we'll say is I want to know God's will, but Here's the thing that happens. And sometimes we say we want to know God's will, 
but and there's a lot of talk about knowing God's will, not as much talk about doing God's will. And to me, I think that that's really the most important thing is because while knowing God's will is good, doing God's will is absolutely vital to living a life that matters. Um, because what will happen is, is that we think that knowing God's will is an issue of information. But really knowing God's will should be what just causes us to take the next step in doing God's will. Because everything that we want in life is not found in knowing God's will, it's found in doing it. That when we talk about purpose and meaning and fulfillment and destiny and blessing and all of that, that's not found in just knowing intellectually what God wants us to do. It's found in doing what it is that God wants us to do. And there's a lot of messages, a lot of talk on knowing God's will. But what I want to talk to you today is an issue that I think gets spoken of very little. And that is actually doing the things that God wants us to do. And here's the kind of the quandary that we can be in sometimes. And it's this. It's, well... How do I actually do God's will if I don't know God's will? I'll admit that doing God's will is very important. How do I do it without knowing it? Now, here's really what it comes down to. What it really comes down to is that many times when we do what we already know, it becomes much easier for us to hear God and know what it is that God wants us to do. Because I believe for many of us, we're educated beyond our level of obedience. That is, we know a lot more about God than we're actually putting into practice in our lives. And what it makes us, if I can use the phrase, forgive me, it makes us like spiritually constipated. Say, what? No, it does, because we just take it in, take it in, take it in, take it in. And we're not actually just like processing things and moving things the way that they actually should be going. And, and, and what happens is we say, well, if I just know a little more, then I'll really get it. No, maybe what we need to do is actually start doing a little more of what we already know to do. And that's the thing that happens. People say, well, I want to know God's will. Well, God's already told us a bunch of stuff and we're not doing it. What makes us think if we actually know one more thing that that's actually going to be the thing that sends us over the edge to start doing it? Instead, we start doing what we already know to do. We read God's word and we start doing it. Here's what will happen. God will start creating the circumstances. God will start um, bringing the people in our path. God will start giving us the messages and the directions and all the stuff that we need. We need to be faithful with what God has already asked us to do. You see, the guy that we started that we looked at last week, this guy Gideon, was scared. If you were with us last week, you remember the Midianites had taken over Israel. They were oppressing Israel. This guy was terrified. The angel of God shows up and says, you're a mighty man of valor as he's cowering, uh, hoping that nobody finds him. And here's what takes place. God calls him to free Israel. And last time he was wrestling with God's call in his life. But what we're going to see today is him walking in fulfillment to what God has called him to do. And what we're going to see is, is that, listen, everything that we need. To live a life of purpose and meaning. To actually do the will of God is what God reveals to Gideon. And it's what God has already done for us. It's what God is going to do, what God will do for us if we will walk in obedience and say, I don't just want to know God's will. Instead, I want to know it and do it. So we're going to start, if you would, in chapter 6 of Judges and starting in verse 36. And here's what we're going to read. It says, So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor, and if there is dew on the fleece only, and it's dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece together and wrung out the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. 
Then Gideon said to God, please do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece and let the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the ground and there was but there was dew uh, on all. There was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. If you pause there and give me your attention, there's four things that I want to share with you this morning. Uh, or this afternoon about doing God's will. And here's the first one that I want to share with you. That when it comes to doing God's will, you need God's call, not perfect circumstances. You need God's call. You need the call of God in your life, not perfect circumstances. And some of the times what we do is we try to kind of force God's hand to show us something or create these circumstances that will actually, um, you know, may, well, this is really must be God because of the, the these things. Now, Here's what I mean. When I was in college, I'd go to college during the day, and then I delivered. I was a delivery guy at night. And so I was driving in my car, and um, I had just bought this new worship CD, and it was just ministering to me big time. And I was driving, windows down, singing at the top of my lungs, just worshiping God. And um, and I did just something. I don't even I, I, I don't even know how to explain this, but it's so silly. But I just got so caught up in worshiping God as I was driving down the street. I'm driving. As a four-lane uh, road, I'm driving, you know, it's kind of like Miramar Parkway, like that, like that kind of road. So it's a four or six lanes. I'm driving down 45 miles an hour. I'm worshiping, and I just get caught up in this moment of worship. And I just say, Lord, you take the wheel. And I just lifted up my hands to worship. Lord, you're so good. I'm just really going for it and singing. And I'm like, this is amazing. I'm worshiping God. Jesus is driving, just like the song, Jesus, take the wheel. And he's taking the wheel and I'm singing, right? And then it was awesome until I hit the median. And, you know, and then you hit the median, then you hit a tree and it's like not as good. You know, it's not the way you kind of expect it. Like I expected to just worship and then the car would just turn to where my next delivery was. And this is great, you know, and then the car would park for me. And and, and, and here's what happens. And then I I hit the median and I was so honestly, if I be honest, I was so mad that I'm like, God, I'm trying to worship. I can't be encumbered by driving. I'm trying to worship. That's what you, you've, called, you've called us to be a people who worship, and I'm trying to worship. And, and really, you know, can I just tell you that you say, well, you know, what was that? Listen, it's immaturity on my part. You know what I wanted? If I'd be real honest now, as that's so many years have passed. I wanted God to do a parlor trick for me. Um, sometimes what we'll do is, instead of just doing what we know God has told us to do, we'll say this, God, could you just do this little trick I want to I want to make sure it's you. So, uh, you know, when I wake up in the morning, could my breakfast already be made? And then I will know it's you. You know, two eggs, bacon. Well, no bacon, because that's not kosher. But, you know, we'll do something like that. And then I'll know it's you. And, and so and, 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 and say, well, well, why is that? Why? But that's how is that actually going to get us to do God's will? It's not. It's just a parlor trick. And see, what we do sometimes is that we want to reduce God to just like a street magician that will do tricks for our entertainment and satisfy our own curiosity rather than saying, you're God, I'm the servant, what you've said I'm going to do. There's a big difference between the two things. What happens with Gideon? He's asking God for a parlor trick because he's still scared. But I want you to notice that there is a difference. And he, the, the, the thing, the trick that he asks God to do, do is, with the, is with the fleece. A fleece of wool is basically like a um, a skin of of of, 
it's a sheepskin with the, the wool on it. And what they would do is they would take it and he says, well, let the ground be dry and let the, the, the fleece be, um, let it be wet. So he wakes up in the morning, he wrings out the fleece, and the fleece is soaking wet. But then he remembers that's kind of something that normally happens. Like, you know, because these wool um, holds moisture so, so well that the ground can be dry, but the, the, the fleece would be wet. So he says, well, yeah, that's a little too easy. Let's switch it. Let's do it so that the fleece is dry, but the ground is wet. And then God does it for him. And, and, then, and now this has kind of become, if you've never heard it, this has become kind of part of like, you know, uh, Christian talk. You know, it's become part of our vernacular in the Christian community. We talk about putting out our fleece before the Lord. And it's basically, I'm putting out my fleece, God. If you perform this parlor trick, then I will, uh, I will do the thing that you wanted me to do. Now, here's the thing that's important for us to remember. Gideon is not just laying in bed waiting for God to do this before he does something. Instead, Gideon has already obeyed God. Gideon has already decided that he's going to fight the Midianites. Gideon has already destroyed the altar of Baal and set up an altar to God, by the way, and it almost got him killed. And so it's not the same thing that what happens many times with us as Christians as we say, well, if God will just do this little trick for me, then I'll know he's in it. No, it's not the way it works. You start obeying God and then maybe God will show up in an amazing way. Now, let me tell you the thing that's important for us to understand, this important principle. And, uh, and here's what it is. It's that miracles do not produce faith. Now, you might listen to that and say, I don't think that's right. I think what you mean to say is that miracles produce faith in people, right? No, I'm trying to tell you that miracles do not produce faith. How's that? If miracles produce faith, then the children of Israel who saw the ten plagues in Egypt, who saw the Red Sea part, who saw Pharaoh's army drowned in the Red Sea as they were chasing Israel, who saw manna from heaven, who heard the voice of God at Mount Sinai, who got... Um, you know, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to lead them in the wilderness, you would think they would have been the most faith-filled people on the planet. And you know what the Bible says? They did not believe. Psalm 78 is, a, is this amazing song um, in, in the Psalms that talks about the whole song is this history of um, the children of Israel coming through, coming from being slaves in Egypt, coming into the promised land. And there's this, it's almost like a, a, a chorus. It's almost like a refrain in this song, in Psalm 72, because it happens in verses 22, and it happens in verse 32 again, where he tells them the song, and then they come back telling them the same thing again. And here's what it says in verse 22. It says, for they did not believe in God or trust in his deliverance. And then they start talking more about what God did. That God brought them out, that he had the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, that they struck a rock and water came out and fed 2.5 million people by striking this giant rock. And yet they still did not believe. And then Psalm 78, verse 32, it says, yet in spite of all of this, they kept on singing. In spite of his wonders, they did not believe. Why? Because miracles don't produce faith. The Bible tells us something differently in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. It says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When you hear what the Bible says and you start acting on it, your faith is built up. It's an amazing thing that happens when you hear God's word and you do it. You know what happens? Your faith begins to grow. It's not a miracle that you need. It's the word of God that we need in our lives that causes our faith to grow. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I put it in the notes that we gave you. It says this. 
Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the, and the wisdom of God. Listen, asking God for a miracle to say, well, God, I'm not going to do anything until you do this little miracle thing, this little parlor trick before I do anything. is like saying to God, listen, God, I appreciate your word, but it's not enough. Jesus, I appreciate the cross, but it's not enough. I'd like a special invitation instead. No, instead, maybe what we need to do, instead of looking for a miracle to produce faith so that I can do God's will, here's maybe what we need to do. We need to step out in obedience to the, to the revealed word of God. To say this is what God wants us to do as we read God's word, we begin to do it. And you know what you'll find? Your faith will grow and God will show up in your life in ways that you couldn't possibly imagine. Well, now that... Gideon gets this out of the way. God now begins to do the work that he wants to do. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. It says this, Then Jerubel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, These people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them, there, I'll test them for you there. And this will be. That of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same will go with you. And of whom I say to you, this one will not go with you, the same shall not go. And so he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set him apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who laughed, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But the rest of the people got on their knees to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, By these 300 men who have lapped, I will, I will save you, and I will deliver the Midianites into your hands. And then I, I underlined this phrase in my Bible, Let all the other people go, every, other man, every man to his place. And so the people took provisions and trumpets in their hands, and he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. And now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. And if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the second thing I want to share with you about doing God's will. And that is that you need God's presence, not ungodly people. You need God's presence, not ungodly people. One of the things that I am really blessed to be able to do um, is I have this privilege of being able to go and speak all over the place, uh, talking about what God has done here at Calvary and being, being able to tell our story. Uh, and I'm able to tell our story all the time to pastors and church leaders who hear about what God is doing here. And when I tell our story, I just talk about, you know, it was my wife and I and five people in a living room. That's how we started. And there was no lights and there was no screens. The, the most, the, the, you know, the most intricate technology that we had was a music stand. That was it. And that was the music stand was where I had my sheet music and where I had the pul- and that was like the pulpit too. That was that was the whole thing, and um, and then but here's what will happen is I'll tell our story and then I'll get done and then here's what will happen someone will come up to me and they'll say so how did it really happen and I'm like w- weren't you just here 
Like, yeah, I know, but I mean, like, I, I hear, you know, you and your wife and five people in the living room. That's like you, but how did it, what did you guys really do? Well, we met in a living room, my wife and I, and, you know, five or six of us. Technically, it was five people, and then it was, you know, seven of us all together, and then there was this one couple. They flaked out after the first week. So then the second week, it was my wife and I and three people, and I thought if, but pretty, pretty soon it's going to be just my wife and I if we keep going in this direction. And she wasn't even all that convinced because she was... She's like, I like the church. I'm just not really all that thrilled about the preacher. And, uh, and so, you know, and so now, and, and here's the thing, is that people are asking, and they're saying, well, come on, but I mean, what's the real story? The real story is my wife and I and five people and God did something amazing. And they're like, but here's the thing, it's like, well, come on, I mean, just seven people, you, you couldn't have done this. No, seven people can't do this. Seven people and God can do this, but not just seven people. This is the very thing that God is teaching Gideon. The lesson of this story is that God does not want to give the glory to other people. God says, I'm going to do this in such a way so that people will glorify God and come to God. And he'll sometimes he will stack the deck in such a way so that it can only succeed if he is in it. And and, and this is the thing that is amazing to me about this story is that he says, all right, everybody. Now, mind you, there's one hundred and thirty five thousand Midianites that they're going to be fighting. There's thirty two thousand Israelites. Right there, that, that would, you know, they're outnumbered four to one. Those are not good odds in, in and of itself. But he says, God says, ah, there's too many. Gideon, to ask, tell everybody who's afraid they can go home. He's like, well, all right, I'll tell them. But, you know, four or five guys, you know, these are all men. These, aren't, these guys aren't going to go. These guys aren't going to leave. You know, they're going to get emails from their friends that they're a wuss for not going. So, 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 all right, if anybody's afraid, you can go home. And two out of three people leave. You know, Gideon's probably like, wow, I did not see that one coming. Um, we went from 32,000 now to 10,000, 22,000 people left. And then God says, well, it's still too many. And he's probably thinking like, I'm not really sure about that. So uh, here's what I want you to do. And I'll admit that it's a weird thing. But he says, I want you to go down to this spring. Oh, um, by the way, the reason that he asks them, uh, hey, uh, go down. If anybody's afraid, they can go home. That was in keeping with the law of Moses. In um, Deuteronomy chapter 20, I believe it's verse 8. Um, it says that the commander is supposed to ask the people, if any of you are afraid, you can go home. And that way, the purpose is, it's in your notes, so that it wouldn't dishearten the other people. So that you got all these guys talking about being afraid. Next thing you know, everybody's afraid. So if you're afraid, go home. We don't need you. And then, um, so the, the other guys won't be, won't be afraid. But then God has them pass this, this drinking test. Now, I will admit it's an odd thing. Because here's what he does. He says, everybody who comes to a spring of water, they get to this little, like, spring. Everybody who just scoops the water up with their hand and drinks it, those guys get to stay. But then there's these other people. And I, once again, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, if you get to a spring of water, you would probably scoop it up and drink it like that. There's other people, like, of, this, of the 10,000 guys that are left, 9,700 of them. This is what they did. They threw themselves on the floor, they stuck their face in the water and went... And drank like a dog does. I don't know about you. When you're thirsty, do you get like water from your faucet and be like, you know, I could drink this out of a cup or I could put it in a bowl and put it on the floor. That sounds so refreshing. And then I could lay on the floor and go and just drink it like my dog does. You see, that's not normal. If you're doing that, you need to go talk to somebody. All right. But here's the thing that happens is that he says, well, everybody who does that, they they need to go. I'm telling you, I think that this is like God's IQ test. He's like, we're going to let all the low SAT scores go home after this little test. 
and we're going to keep the 300 that actually act normal socially. Um, and, and then, and then now, now here's the thing. Now here's, I believe there really is a, a, there's a reason behind this because their posture was indicative of what was happening around them. These guys are ready to go into battle. It's, I mean, these guys are thirsty. I don't think there's anything wrong with being thirsty. You've got all your gear. You're going into battle. You're setting up a tent. You're in, you know, this is a desert climate uh, in Israel. There's nothing wrong with being thirsty. But here's what happens. They get to water, and you know what they do? They throw off everything. And they just kind of like throw their head into the water and start drinking. But what happens there? They're totally exposed. The other guys, they've got a sword. They've got a spear. They've got a staff. And they grab some water with one hand and they say, I'm very thirsty too. But I also recognize my surroundings and where I am. And that was the difference between the two groups. One group that said, I'm only interested in satisfying a desire that I have in the moment. The other group that said, I have a desire and God is meeting that need. But I'm also cognizant of where I am. This is a battlefield. We're in a battle. We're engaged in something. There's a mission that God has us on. And if we forget that, then we've missed it. And listen, I'm telling you that that's the reason why God says to these guys, you know, dog lappers, you can go home because this isn't going to work out. Because there comes a moment where you say, I've got a need that needs to be met, but it cannot take precedence over the big picture in my life. And here's what will happen sometimes to you and me is that we can get around people. And here's what they'll say. Listen, leave him, leave her. It's the momentary decision. But they forget that there's a big picture. There's a family that needs to, 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 that we need to fight for. So, yeah, it's not easy, but I know that if we work hard and we do the things that aren't easy, but, and remember that there's a big picture here. I'm, I'm amazed at the things that, that happen, and here's, here's what happened. We'll hear this. We'll, either our, we'll say it ourselves, or someone will tell you this. And like, you know, you can take the office supplies. It's not a big deal. So you take a few... So you steal a mouse or two. You know, come on, do you know how much money your company makes? You know, you go to a hotel on vacation. Do you think it's really a big deal if you steal a few towels? And you, you know, and, and, and now it's like, well, do you know how much money those hotel makes? They're probably overcharging you for that room. And now, and, and here, here you've now become the, uh, you know, you're like the Robin Hood of linens. I steal terry cloth from the rich to give to the poor. And that, and that, become, that becomes what you do. And it's like, well, what is that? That's, and here's the big picture. Big picture is integrity matters. What I do when no one's looking matters. The momentary decision, man, I could use a few extra towels in my house. Who couldn't? The other thing is, they're not your towels. You're borrowing their towels. Now, the fact that the thousands of other people have used those towels, are you sure you want them in your house? That's another question altogether. Um, because the disgusting factor just hit in the red. Um, but, but listen, that, that's the point, and that becomes the issue with these guys, is that they, they, they forgot. And, and, and listen, the, the key for us is that we need to be able to influence those around us without us, ourselves, being compromised. And listen, when you're able to manage the inputs in your life, manage the inputs, and what I mean by that is, um, like, who you hang out with, what you watch, what you listen to, and the things that you're just putting in your mind, when you're able to really manage those things, listen, what God is able to do in your life just goes through the roof. Because when you, when you put the inputs in your life that create deeper communion with God and greater commitment to God and greater obedience to God, 
Listen, it's an amazing thing that happens. That's why he tells these guys, you want to go, go. Because here's the deal. For, here's the, the real thing. Is that you forgot the, the big picture. You're just making, making momentary decisions. And momentary decisions never end up being necessarily the right thing in the long term. We've always got to have the big picture in mind. Well, what happens next? Check this out. Look at verse 8. Or pardon me, verse 9. It says, And it happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, to Gideon, Arise, go down to the camp, for I've delivered it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And now the Midianites and Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as the locusts and their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. And he said to him, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread stumbled into the camp of Midian, came into a tent, struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. And his friend answered and said, this is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand, the God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the, the third the third point I want to talk to you about uh, when it comes to doing God's will, and that is that you need God's timing, not your timetable. You need God's timing, not your timetable. Now, here, here's what I mean by that, and that is that God has this ability of working out circumstances in a way that we would never be able to work out apart from Him. Um, when my wife and I were first married. We were living in Coral Springs, and um, my wife was working at a bank in, in Coral Springs, and, but she had to go do some training in downtown Miami. So I told her to take my car. My car was a little nicer um, because I drove a little further uh, to work. And her, I mean, literally, she worked like two blocks from, uh, from where we, the apartment that we lived in. And, um, and I thought, so I said, listen, use my car. It's a little better. It was a great strategy, um, except on the way home, um, she, one of her tires blew out on I-75, not such a good strategy, um, on the way home. And so, by the way, this is before like cell phones. I know it's hard to imagine many of you like, what is life like without a cell phone? Um, but it, we had no cell phones back then. I mean, this is, you're talking about like 1998, you know, I mean, a few of us were rocking beepers at the time, but that's about it. So yeah, hardcore beepers. Um, so I still got one. That's, that's good. Um, Anyway, so not that she even said that, but it's just kind of funny. Um, so anyway, what, what happens is this, is that she has no way of communicating. Like how we even survived, like, you know, is, is, is amazing. Anyway, so she has no idea. So she blows out a tire. She gets into the breakdown lane. Now, mind you, my, my wife is wearing a skirt, pantyhose, high heels, like the whole thing, right? And so she's going to go and change a tire. I've never changed a tire in high heels, but I would assume that it's a little trickier than like in sneakers. All right, that's my guess. And so she goes, she opens up the trunk. As the moment she opens up the trunk, and then she hears the sound behind her, and it's a tow truck that pulls up. And uh, the guy walks up to her and barely says a word to her. 
He just says, um, uh, is this the spare tire in here? And she says, yes. And so he opens up, he grabs a spare tire, you know, jacks up the car, changes the tire. And Carrie's like, thank you so much. Thank you so much. As, as he's doing this, puts the flat tire in the trunk, closes the trunk. And then he says to Carrie, can I please see your AAA card? And she's like, pardon? He's like, yeah, you know, the, uh, I just need the card, the one that has the number on the back that you called to have me come out. And she says, I'm sorry, sir, I'm not a AAA member. And, uh, and she says, well, we got a call that there was a girl who was broken down on the highway with a flat tire, and that's why I stopped. And she said, yeah, well, I am a girl broken down on I-75 with a flat tire, but I didn't call. I, I don't have AAA, nor do I have a phone. And, um, and so anyway, he said, well, have a nice day. And so he left. And uh, she gets back in the car. She starts driving half a mile up the road. She sees a girl, like she sees the guy pulled over and sees the actual girl that had called that, that had a flat tire. And he sees her, like right as Carrie's driving by, he's handing, uh, she's handing the guy the, the card because now he's doing it before. He's like, I'm not doing the work until I see the card this time, uh, which seemed like a little better strategy for him. Um, and so, and so, um, so, so anyway, so she says, um, <laughs> so she's driving by. Now, now, how does that work out? How does it work out that it's like, I, the, my wife has a flat tire, the guy shows up right at that very moment. I mean, she hadn't actually even touched the tire yet. She just opened the trunk, and the guy showed up. Turns out there's somebody else that had gotten the tire that had AAA, that had a phone, that called him. How does that work? That's God. That's God working things out. It's something that we call a divine appointment. A divine appointment is when your need and God's resources intersect at a moment when you need Him most. And, and listen, God sets these things up better than we ever could. How does it work that Gideon is a little bit afraid still? And, and, and God says to him, you want to get encouraged? Go over to the, the Midianite camp and, and listen closely. So he walks over. And he hears one guy talking about his dream to another guy. He says, I had this dream about this barley loaf and it rolled into a tent. The tent overturned. Isn't that weird? When was the last time you saw about a, a, had a dream about a loaf of bread that did all kinds of damage? And the weirdest part is that they li- the guy listens and he says, oh, that's Gideon. He's the loaf of bread. Because now this guy's like an interpreter of dreams. And he says, the loaf of bread is Gideon and he's overturning the tent, which is us. It means Gideon's going to wipe us out. That's what the bread means. Because, uh, you know, and, 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 then, and then, but Gideon is walking up exactly when the guy is telling the story and the interpreter. How does that work? That's this divine appointment that happens and, and what does God use? He uses it to encourage him. And listen, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. You've ever been like, I'm going to make this decision. I'm going to step out in faith. I'm going to do something that's kind of against the grain. And you come in here. And the very thing that I'm talking about or one of the other pastors is the very issue that you're dealing with. And you say, how did that work out? And, and it's like over and over again. And I'm telling you, I hear this every single week. So people come in and say, did, did my wife call you? I get that all the time. My wife call you? Did my husband call you? Did anyone that knows me call you and tell you about what's going on or email you? And uh, sometimes I play with them and say yes. But the truth is, is that it's no. It, no. Well, what ha- then how is that possible? Because I'm just a tow truck guy. That's all it is. And God is using me to meet your need. It has nothing to do with what I know or don't know. Is that God's leading me to say some things, and it's exactly what you need to hear. And so now, God's resources and your need intersect, and it's a divine appointment, and you walk out and you say, God met me in this place. And that's the incredible thing that happens. 
But here's the thing that's, that's, that's amazing. Now Gideon hears this and he says, I'm ready to go and do what God has called me to do. But the thing that we have to understand is that he was already there. He was already going to do the battle. This was just that final push to encourage him. Um, when my wife and I were praying about coming here and starting Calvary, we hadn't told a soul who, what we were praying about. But I remember that we were having lunch one day and I said to Carrie, I said, I, I really believe the Lord is calling us to come and start this church and, and, and leave um, where we were serving as, uh, as an, I was an assistant pastor. I thought I'd spend my whole life there. I was training pastors and leaders at a college. And I thought, man, this is just, uh, this is heaven for me. And, um, and I began to start feeling this strong leading uh, through a whole series of circumstances to come and, 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 and start Calvary. And I said to my wife after we were having lunch that day, and I said, you know, I think that we need to just pray and fast. And we need to just spend the next three days praying and fasting um, and, and seeking God's leading and God's direction that God would speak to us very clearly. The next day, um, I get an email. Mind you, I had, I had not told a soul. My wife and I had not told anyone. Now, the next day, I get an email uh, from my pastor that I was, uh, that I was serving with. And um, he, he got an email from someone who lives in Miami. And he, the, the, the email, they sent the email to, to my pastor and they said, um, is there anyone, one of your pastors or anyone on your staff who would be interested in coming to Miami to start a church? Because we really need a, a, a church, a Calvary-type church that just teaches the Bible and really equips people uh, to walk with God. And um, We need that here in, here in the city. Uh, would anybody be interested in that? I'd love to be involved in, in helping start a church. And um, he reads that email and he forwards it to me. He didn't forward it to everybody. He forwarded it to me. And he said, and the email just said, FYI, you should pray about this. He had no idea that we were already praying about this. We had already felt God leading us to, to a particular place. We were already fasting and saying, God, we, we, we really want to hear your voice and, 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 you know, now how does that work? See, people say to me, listen, that email came from God. And people say, I would love for God to email me. God did email me. It was awesome. I, I, you, say, you know, and he just used somebody to, 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 to send me the message so that I might do the thing that he wanted me to do. But here's the thing that I want you to note. When was it that this divine appointment happened? In Gideon's life, same way it happened. In my life, the same the way that it can happen in your life. He was already encamped in the battle. He was already doing the things that God wanted him to do. So as he's already doing that, he's already following the steps. And now God's giving him just one more thing to show him. I, I, I don't have time to look at this passage. I put it in your notes. In the book of Acts chapter 8, it's this wonderful story of a guy by the name of Philip. There's this amazing revival that's breaking out in, um, in Samaria, which is like, imagine like central Israel. Um, and God tells Philip, I want you to go south. Kind of leave all the great stuff I'm doing here and go south. And he's like, why? What's the point? What am I going to do there? He doesn't say, God doesn't say anything else except I want you to go south towards Gaza. Okay. So Philip starts going south towards Gaza. And as he's going south towards Gaza, he sees a guy, uh, uh, an Ethiopian eunuch. And the, the Ethiopian eunuch just so happens to be reading the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. He just so happens to be reading Isaiah 52 and 53, which are some of the most potent passages about the Messiah in the Old Testament. And so he's reading this and, and he's walking by and the eunuch says, hey, do you know anything about this? 
Well, yeah, Philip's an evangelist. Philip's a Bible teacher. And he says to Philip, uh, he says, now the writer, when he says that he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, that um, all of this, that he, by his stripes were healed. And, 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 and the eunuch says, is he talking about, is the writer talking about himself or someone else? Well, that becomes now his moment. So he's not talking about himself. He's talking about Jesus, the Messiah. He preaches the gospel to this guy. This guy gets radically saved. He comes to know Jesus. They, they travel a little bit down the road, sees some water, and the eunuch says, hey, shouldn't I get baptized? Isn't that what the Bible teaches, that if I come to Jesus, I should get baptized? And he says, yes, he gets baptized. And guess what? The Bible says that then Philip heads out to another place. The Spirit just moves him to some other place. And here's the thing that I find so interesting and that just matters so much for your life and mine. God says, go south. He doesn't tell him because there's a guy, because he needs to get saved, because he needs to get baptized, because then there's another place he needs to go. He just says, go south. And then he goes and then God gives him the next step and the next step. And here's the point for you and for me. God is not going to give you steps one through five. God gives you step one and says, all right, here's the first step. Obey that. Well, you know, I just have a few more questions. No, no more insight. No more. I want to know. I need a little bit more information. Here's the one thing I want you to do. God's not going to overwhelm you with 20 things. Here's the one thing. And then you take that step and you know what God says? Here's the second step. And then he gives it to you. You do it. Then here's the third step. And just step by step by step by step. He leads us. And that's when you start seeing these divine appointments happening. When your need and God's resources begin to intersect. Because he gives us these steps one at a time. Well, let me show you how the story ends in verse 16. It says, And then he divided the 300 men into three companies. He put a trumpet in every man's hand and emp- with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when you come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. And when I blow the trumpet... I and all who are with me, then you shall blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp, saying, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And so Gideon and the three and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, that is, in the middle of the night. And he blew the trumpet, and they broke the pitchers that were in their hands, and then the three companies blew their trumpets and broke the pitchers, and they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing, and they cried out, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. And then, when the three hundred blew their trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to Beth Acacia, towards Zerah, and to the border of Abel uh, uh, anyway, that place. Uh, and, and to <laughs> Now, here's the thing. Here's the last point that I want to make to you. And that is that you need God's leading, not your leanings. You need God's leading, not your leanings. Uh, my wife and I were, in, my family was invited to this party um, at a restaurant last week. And so my son has this thing. He doesn't like sitting in the high chair too long because it's kind of like, preventing him from world domination, which is kind of like his goal in life. And so after he eats, you know, he's like, I am ready to go. And so I take him out, I put him down and he kind of walks around the, the restaurant a little bit. And uh, so I'm kind of following him and watching and he gets right to the door because they had the door open. He gets right to the door to go outside and he turns around to make sure I'm there and he won't go. 
And he just kind of comes back to me, and then he wants to go down, and then he gets to the door, and then he looks at me. And he, what he's trying to do is get my permission to say, you know, Papi, I want to head out, but I don't want to do it unless you tell me it's all right. And so I'm like, it's okay, Xander, you can walk outside. And then he just bolts. Now, the thing is, once you tell him it's okay, that's all his territory now. So he doesn't even want to go back inside. But he'd wait until I told him yes. And then every time we'd go back inside, he'd come back out, he'd look for me, he'd look at me. Like, remember, we went out before. It's okay for me to go back out again, okay? So he'd look at me. I'm standing there, and then he would bolt out again. And here's the thing that happens. And it got me thinking about this as I was watching him do that. And I'm like, I wonder, I wonder how often we're willing to walk through certain doors, not even looking to see if God wants us to walk through them or not. We walk through them because it just makes logical sense. And we just kind of have a leaning. We're just leaning towards that decision anyway. But it really has very little to do with what God is leading us to do and listen when i just do what i just kind of just kind of made sense to me that's a recipe for disaster because i can tell you in my life i'm not really all that interested in well just kind of makes sense to me because i don't know the future instead what i want to know is what is the spirit of god leading me to do that's the thing that i want oh pastor you got to understand i have a dream and this is my goals and all this listen you can have a dream all you want i have a dream every few nights that i'm a ninja what does that mean? I'm pretty sure God doesn't want me to become a Japanese assassin. But so and, and now listen, I'm kidding. I, I think goals and dreams are very important and they motivate us, but they can never replace us asking God what he, we what he wants us to do and asking for his direction in our lives. Because sometimes this is the, this is the thing that sometimes you don't realize about goals and about dreams. And I am I'm, I'm a huge goal setter um, and I, I'm, 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 I'm very wired that way. And here's the thing that's important for us to note is that sometimes the goals that God has for us aren't even on our radar because they're just beyond what we can even comprehend. The Bible says this in first Corinthians that eye is not seen, ear is not heard. It has not even entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for those who love him. We haven't even thought of it, what God has prepared for us. And so here's the thing that happens. Um, this is the memory verse for this week. I'm just going to tell you right now, if you don't have this memorized, you need to make it your mission this week to memorize these two verses. It's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Very famous verses in the Bible. You need to commit them to memory. It says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. In 1995, I was in a band. We had just put out our first album. Um, We had a two-album record deal. And uh, I, I had just gotten back from spending the summer on tour, traveling all over, uh, uh, traveling all over America. Uh, we filmed the video in, um, in California. And by the time our tour was over and all of that had been edited, it was getting some play uh, on TV. And by the way, there is nothing cooler in the world than turning on the TV and seeing yourself. Um, unless it's like in prison, you're in prison or something. But, um, you know, so it's like turning on the TV, seeing yourself in a white Bronco, probably not that good. Um, but turning turning on the TV and seeing your video, um, that, that was pretty cool. I'll admit that was pretty cool. And, um, so we were halfway writing our second, we were halfway done writing our second album. And, um, and I, and I just, just felt God for months leading me to do three things. One is I needed to take a full class load in college and finish getting my theology degree. That was the first thing. The second thing is I needed to ask my wife to marry me. And then, of course, trick her into saying yes. Um, And number three, I needed to quit the band that I was in and and prepare myself for ministry. And I remember the night that I quit, 
man, I, I tell you where I was, I tell you where I was sitting. And uh, I told these guys of what my plans were and uh, what, what I believe that God had put in my heart for me to do. And, uh, and here's the thing, I mean, and I talk about this sometimes, but from the time that I was 15 years old, all I, or less, you know, but I bought a bass guitar on my 15th birthday. Um, and uh, all I wanted to be it was a musician. That's all I wanted to be was in a band, get a record deal, go on tour, and, um, you know, turn on the TV and see my video. I mean, all of that, and I got that. And um, and it was like, this is this is this is it, you know, and I was a Christian and um, we were in this band. And, and so, you know, since I thought I was going to be a musician. I became a Christian. I just thought I'm going to be a Christian musician and just serve God playing music. And then God just said, OK, that, that season of your life is coming to an end. And I got to tell you that that it, it was it was not an easy decision. But I can tell you this, that I would not be standing here before you had I not made that decision. This had not even come on my radar. It was not on my 10 goals that I wanted to accomplish. It was, I mean, that was kind of scratching on all the goals that I had set out for myself. But instead, um, God had something else entirely because it had not even come into my mind what God had prepared for those who love him, like the passage teaches us in 1 Corinthians. And the thing that I had to learn in that lesson, and I've had to learn since, and that we have to learn, is that, listen, there might be leanings that we have, but we want God's leading because God's leading is infinitely better than my own wisdom and what I think can happen. And that's what Gideon is asked to do. 32,000 people go home, 300 stay. And God has this ingenious plan. He says, take the guys, three camps, 100 in each camp. And then here's what I want you to do. When I give you the signal, you're all going to break the pitchers. They're going to see the, the, the torches. You're going to blow the trumpet, say the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. You say, well, what, what makes that so powerful? Culturally, you would have one trumpet for every thousand people that would call a, a group together. You would have one torch, which would be the leader of a of, of, of this this group, you know, of, of the army. Um, and so, the, you know, you have this this group, one torch, one um, trumpet. So here's what here's what God's plan is. Here's what I want you to do. Three, three groups surround the camp. And then you got 300 trumpets and 300 torches. So when these guys hear the, the breaking of, of these clay vessels, they see the torches, they hear the trumpet, they hear all these guys screaming, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, in the middle of the night, they start doing the math. 300 torches, 300 trumpets, times 1,000, because that's kind of what we do here. They're thinking it's now 300,000 to 135,000. We're outnumbered 2.5 to 1. It creates so much confusion, they start turning on each other and killing each other. And they've got a... A torch in one hand and a trumpet. It's like the brass section won the vic- got the victory. How did that happen? God gave Gideon the victory. Because it was about following God's leading. Because he decided to do God's will, not just, hey, I just want to know it. And the qu- thing that we have to decide is, are we, re- are we ready to do God's will? Not just take his will under advisement or find his will interesting or find his will. Oh, it's so fascinating. Or maybe God could do a parlor trick for me. No, instead that we base every decision on what he wants and no decisions on what I'm thinking. So if that's the case, maybe we can talk about a couple of next steps. Maybe we could talk about uh, when, we, when we talked about baptism earlier. You know, some of you have come to know Jesus in the last few months and you have you're yet to be baptized as an adult. That's a command of Jesus. If you're a follower of his, to be baptized as an adult. It's the pledging of a good conscience towards God in the book of 1 Peter. 
It's when you go into the water and you identify with Jesus in his death, and then you come out of the water identifying with Jesus in his resurrection and what the Bible calls the newness of life. You say, well, what? we need to do it. Oh, but you've got to understand. And, and this, listen, that is God's will. Because it's a command in Scripture, and God's will is for us to obey his commands. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And so, without excuses, without fanfare, that we just decide. And if you look on the back of your connection card, what you have is an opportunity that says, you know what? In two weeks, there's a baptism, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to make that simple step that has profound meaning and significance. How about this one? Have you given your life to Jesus? Oh, see, I, I, I went to church as a kid, or I know some stuff about God. I went to parochial school. It's not what I asked. I mean, have you given your life to Jesus? Have you asked him to come into your life and forgive you? Have you asked him because of the cross, because he, he died for us, because he rose again from the dead, and he offers forgiveness of sins, entrance into God's kingdom, eternity with him? Have we invited him into our lives and asked him to forgive our sins and that we're going to walk with him? That's what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, then that's where we begin. That's the place where we start. But here's what I want to do. We're going to close in prayer, and I want to lead you in a prayer. And they might be my words, but here's what I know, that I believe that they can say the words that your heart wants to say to God, but perhaps you can't quite articulate it. And so, as we talk about not just knowing God's will, doing God's will, coming to Him, asking Him to save you, asking Him to forgive you, that's the first order of business, and coming to God and walking with Him. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you. We want to thank you for your love, for your grace, for the fact that your son died for us as the ultimate act, as the ultimate expression of love. And Lord, we know that in a group this size, that there are some that want to make that decision this afternoon. And so, Lord, I pray. I pray that those who call out to you in this simple prayer, that you would hear, that you would respond and that you would act on their behalf, and that they would leave changed from this very moment. Those of you that want to make that decision this morning, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Simply repeat this prayer with me. It's not a magic formula. They might be my words, but I believe if you pray it in sincerity that God will hear and begin the work of changing your life and in forgiving you. Just say out loud, Dear God, I open my heart, and I invite you in. I ask that you forgive me of all I've done wrong. I thank you for Jesus who died for me that I might have life. I want to walk with you starting right now. In Jesus' name, amen.